going back to our major premise that truth was restored in the order of its importance. If you want to know what's important to God in terms of the restoration, you ask the question, what order did he restore that in? And those form the foundations of the restoration. Now, I would suggest to you the foundation of your testimony ought to match the foundation of the restoration. Some people are allowing things way down the chain to shake their testimony instead of recognizing that the foundation of my testimony is knowing who God is. And the greatest gift of the restoration is we know who He is. We know His character. We know His perfections. We know His purposes. We know how He became God. We know what He wants for us. We know our relationship to Him. The greatest truth that we possess is we know who God is. We know who Christ is. We know their relationship. We know that was restored first. That's why the first vision came first. Moroni didn't come one night and say, hey, start translating the Book of Mormon. That was first because that's the most important truth that we possess. And we could spend an eternity just talking about that. And I would suggest you spend the rest of your life coming to identify what do we know about God and Christ and their purposes because of the restoration. And that's the foundation of my testimony. I can't leave. I can't walk away because no one can tell me about Heavenly Father like the restoration has been able to tell me about Heavenly Father. I know who He is. I know how to communicate with Him. I know how to connect with Him. I know the rules of revelation. All of that is our first circle, but we have to leave. We've got a whole lot of circles to cover. So if this is 1820, spring of 1820, what does the Lord reveal next? If truth was restored in the order of its importance, what's our next circle? What's the next reality in the restoration? What's the next foundation of the restoration? Anyone? 1823, Moroni shows up and says, there's a record. Buried in a hill, four years from now, you're going to get the plates. I'm going to tutor you. We're going to pull the record off those plates, and you're going to produce a book. So, number two is the Book of Mormon. Now, this is not a course on the Book of Mormon. There's an entire cornerstone class where we talk about the, the teachings and the doctrines restored in the Book of Mormon, especially as we look at the ones relative to the restoration. What did the Book of Mormon restore? There's a whole class on that. I make sure you take it, teachings and doctrines of the Book of Mormon. We're not going to jump into that other than to point out what is the chief purpose of the Book of Mormon. Do you see it? What's the chief purpose of the Book of Mormon? To reveal the nature and character of Christ. In fact, let me just show you something. Turn to the very first chapter of the Book of Mormon. Let me point out how it begins. How the Book of Mormon begins. Chapter 1, verse 10. Tell me what happens in chapter 1, verse 10. Well, sorry. Uh, verse 11. 1 Nephi chapter 1, verse 11. Lehi was handed a book. Do you see the symbolism? In the restoration, we have been handed a book. This is a very symbolic. Lehi was handed a book, 
and we have been handed a book. And he was asked to read. Coincidence that the Book of Mormon would begin by someone receiving a book like we've received the Book of Mormon and being asked to read. Now a promise. And with all my soul, I testify that if you will read, you will be filled with the Spirit. If you will read, you'll be filled with the Spirit. Now, tell me what Lehi was commanded to look for. First in verse 13, what are, you, what are we going to find in our book like he found in his book? Warnings. What was the major warning Lehi read in his book? Get out of Jerusalem, it's going to be destroyed. The Babylonians are going to come in and slaughter. What what are the warnings we read in our book? The Book of Mormon is filled with warnings. What else did he find? Verse 14, what did Lehi find in his book and what are we going to find in ours? What have you found in the Book of Mormon? Hopefully great, you have found the great and marvelous things. And sometimes I do this. Sometimes I hold the Book of Mormon next to my heart and just say, thank you, Lord, I love this book. With all my soul, I love this book. And that's what he did. He just praised God because of the good things he found in the book. Now, of all the things in the book, what's the most important, great, and marvelous thing that Lehi found in his book? And what is the most important thing you're going to find in the Book of Mormon? The coming of a Messiah. Now, his book talked about the coming of the Messiah into the world. What does our book talk about? The coming of the Messiah into your life. If you want to find Jesus, open up the Book of Mormon. Listen to the pleadings of many of the prophets. Let's do Nephi. Let's do Nephi's pleading in 2 Nephi chapter 31. Nephi, one of the great main authors of the Book of Mormon, pled, 2 Nephi chapter 31. What was Nephi's pleading? He said, Why was Jesus baptized? Follow thou me. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, can we follow Jesus, save we shall be willing to keep the commandments of the Father. Then Nephi takes over. And I just love this plea. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, the second Nephi 31, wherefore, my beloved brethren, I know that if you shall follow the Son with full purpose of heart, acting no hypocrisy and no deception before God, but with real intent, repenting of your sins, witnessing unto the Father that you are willing to take upon you the name of Christ by baptism, yea, following your Lord and your Savior down into the water, according to his word, behold, then shall you receive the Holy Ghost. Yea, then cometh the baptism of fire and the Holy Ghost, and then ye can speak with the tongue of angels and shout praises unto the Holy One of Israel. Do you sense the pleading? Let me just do one more. How about Moroni? So here's the first author in our book. Let's go to the last book, the last author in our book, the very end of uh, Ether chapter 12. I just love the pleadings of Moroni here. 
verse 41. Moroni, Ether 12, 41. What is Moroni pleading? And now I would commend you to seek this Jesus. I would commend you to seek this Jesus of whom the prophets and apostles have written. And the grace of God the Father and also the Lord Jesus and the Holy Ghost which beareth record of them may be and abide in you forever. That's this book. That's what the book is. So the first thing we've got to understand is the book comes back to the first purpose of the restoration. This book helps us identify who he is. In fact, one of the main purposes of the book, let's go to third Nephi, or first Nephi chapter 13. Nephi sees our day. Let's walk through chapter 13 briefly and again ask the question, why do we have a Book of Mormon? 1 Nephi chapter 13. Now this is our story. This is the story of the Gentiles and it starts in verse 12. Tell me who this man is. Who is Nephi seeing? I beheld a man among the Gentiles who was separated from the seed of my brethren by the many waters. So I'm over here, lot of water, there's a man among the Gentiles. I beheld the Spirit of God that it came down and wrought upon the man, and he went forth upon the many waters, even unto the seed of my brethren, who were in the land of promise. Who's the man? Christopher Columbus. Nephi sees him. Okay, who are the other Gentiles? I beheld other Gentiles who went out of captivity upon the many waters. Who, what do we call them? We have a great name for them. What do we call the people who came to America out of captivity? We call them pilgrims. And then tell me what he saw in verse 17. I beheld the mother Gentiles were gathered together upon the waters and upon the land to battle against them. What is Nephi seeing? The Revolutionary War. Now that he's established the time period, he now changes subjects. And the angel says, showed him a book. I beheld a book and it was carried forth in their hands. The colonists have a book. What's the book? Well, clearly it's the Bible. It proceeded out of the mouth of the Jew. It has the covenants, the prophecies. It's just smaller than the plates of brass that you have, Nephi. He saw the Bible. And then Nephi got the bad news. The bad news was, verse 26, thou seest the formation of that great and abominable church, which is most abominable above all our churches. For behold, they have taken away from the gospel of the Lamb many parts which are plain and precious. Nephi saw the Bible lose plain and precious truths. Nephi saw that the Bible in our day has been edited and is missing plain and precious truths. We saw that with Moses a couple weeks ago, right? They have taken away many plain and precious truths and they've taken away the covenants. They've taken temple ordinances away. And they've done this that they might pervert the right ways of the Lord, that they might blind the eyes and harden the hearts. He saw again, therefore thou seest that the good book has gone forth from the hands of the great and well church, and there are many plain and precious things taken away. 
And after these plain and precious things were taken away, it goeth forth unto all the nations. And because the Bible has lost many plain and precious things, because of the many plain and precious things which have been taken out, which were plain unto the children of man, according to the plainness which is in the Lamb of God, because of these things which are taken away out of the gospel of the Lamb, an exceedingly great many do stumble. Welcome to the latter days, where a lot of people are stumbling because of the loss of plain and precious truths. Now, Nephi must be freaking out. Why would the Lord allow them to strip truths from the Bible? And the Lord says, don't worry, I got a plan. I got a plan. End of verse 40, or 34. I will be merciful unto the Gentiles, and I will bring forth unto them in mine own power much of my gospel, which shall be plain and precious. I'm going to restore my gospel. And how is he going to do it? Here's his plan. Here's the plan. I will manifest myself unto thy seed, Nephi, and they shall write many things which I shall minister unto them, and they shall be plain and precious. And the things which shall be hid, they're going to be hid up to come forth unto the Gentiles by the gift and power of God. And in them shall be written my gospel, my rock, my salvation. Now, just a note about you. Blessed are they who shall seek to bring forth my Zion at that day. That's you. Then he sees the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. Now tell me what the coming forth of the Book of Mormon is going to do. These last records, which thou hast seen among the Gentiles, shall establish the truth of the first, which are of the twelve apostles of the Lamb, and shall make known the plain and precious things which have been taken away from them. And most importantly, what's the most important plain and precious truth the Bible is going to restore? That Jesus is the Christ. So one of the great purposes of the Book of Mormon is to restore plain and precious truth, mainly to restore the knowledge of Christ. Now, this is our core, right? And this is how we know what we know about him. Can anyone think of a truth in the Book of Mormon that you're not going to find in any other book of Scripture that tells you who Jesus is? Let's do an example. Let's do an example of something in the Book of Mormon that is not in any other Scripture and helps us understand Christ. Abby? Uh, children. What? The salvation of children. Okay, well, great example is the salvation of children. Tell me what the world thinks about the salvation of children. What has caused great, comfort, great problems to a lot of heart, heartbroken parents? I don't know if any of you are converts and grew up outside the church and had to deal with this idea that if you don't baptize your child, you've lost it for eternity. Now, long story short, what is the doctrine of the salvation of children? 
was the Book of Mormon restore about the salvation of children? And they are all saved. Now, restoration of a plain and precious truth. But let's focus on Christ. Let's give, let me give you an example of what we know about Christ because we have the Book of Mormon that's been restored. Now, let me... Everyone who accepts the New Testament knows Jesus did something special. What moment do they point to to say that's the special thing he did? Because of what's written in the Bible and the loss of other things, what moment do they point to to say that's what he did that was special? They point to the cross and that he died. Well, let's fill in the gaps because we don't point to a cross. We don't point to the cross as the moment that of his defining victory. What do we point to? Cam, what do we point to? A garden that occurred long, not long, but moments before the cross. And we point to what happened in that garden. Let me just throw one other in. Whole Book of Mormon will teach you the doctrine of the atonement. Let me throw a Book of Mormon truth in that you will not find in any other book of Scripture. Turn with me to Alma chapter 7. One of the great truths restored about Christ. Alma 7. Alma has left the judgment seat. He's in the city of Gideon, a very righteous city, and he was able to talk about more specific things than some of the other cities he visited. And he taught them, he shall go forth suffering pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind. Can you show me a verse in the Book of Mormon, the Bible, that says Jesus suffered pain of every kind? Now, there are a lot of Book of Mormon. We won't take the time, but you, could go, you can search this word. There are a lot of prophets in the Book of Mormon that associate what word with his atonement. What kind of atonement do they say it was? An infinite atonement. So how many pains and afflictions did Jesus suffer? Now, hold on, hold on, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's break that into two dimensions. An infinite breadth and an infinite depth. How many physical pains did Jesus suffer? Every single human pain. How many bones has he broken? How many ways has he broken those bones? Does he know what it's like to give birth to a child? Does he know addiction? Has he been raped? Tell me what he doesn't know. Does he know what it's like to be mentally retarded? Does he know schizophrenia, anxiety, depression? Now, that's breadth, right? 
How many human pains does Jesus know? What if we were to do depth? How well does he know each one of them? Some of you have suffered depression or anxiety for maybe 10 years. He suffered depression how long? For all eternity. It says he shall take upon himself death. Take upon him death. How many ways has he died? How many ways has Christ died? Now, nowhere in Scripture are you going to get that description of who he is and what he did. That's a gift of the restoration. Talk about we know who we worship. We do it because of a book that's been given to us. Now, why did he do that? Why did he take upon himself every sickness to an infinite depth? Why? That his bowels may be filled with mercy. According to the flesh, according to the flesh, personal experience that he may know according to the flesh how to succor his people according to their infirmities. Is there a human experience he doesn't understand? Has he spent an eternity in a wheelchair? Was he abused as a child? Abandoned? Beaten? Was he on a slave ship coming to America? Was he in a concentration camp? Every human experience. Now, do you, do you understand what we know about Christ? And where does that knowledge come from? A book that restores plain and precious truths. Do you see the role that it plays? Now, I'm stepping on the toes of the other class that gets into the restored truths. I don't want to do a whole lot more. I do want to point out one more role that the Book of Mormon plays. The brilliance of Heavenly Father is to say, I'm going to restore truth, and then I'm going to give you credibility. I'm going to give you credibility. I'm going to give you a book that proves it's all true. You don't have to take anyone's word. I'm going to give you credible evidence. Not that we're into proving, but I'm going to establish credible evidence. This restoration is built on credible evidence that this is in fact God's work. And that's the role the, play, the Book of Mormon plays. It is the credible evidence that he established. Do you know how we're confident that this is who God is? We're confident that we know the truth about God because this book gives everything that we know credibility. You're going to have an impossible time to explain where the book came from if you don't believe it's credible. Now, that plays into our favor. So allow me to point out, 
I'll do it in the same color. Let me simply, let me do an analogy with math, okay? If I, if A equals B and B equals C and C equals D and D equals E. How many unknowns do I have? One. one. Not five. I have one unknown. Whatever A is, so is B, so is C, so is D, and so is E. That's what the Lord did in the restoration. Let me show you. A is simply the Book of Mormon. If you know A, tell me what else you know. If you know that if you know that the Book of Mormon is in fact restored, revealed truth, tell me what other unknown just got clarified for you. That its translator is in fact a prophet. Joseph Smith has credibility. If the book is true, I don't need to know a whole lot else. I don't need to go meet him. I didn't need to go back in time and meet him. I have actual credible evidence that he was a prophet. Now, what else, what other unknown does the Book of Mormon clarify? If Joseph was a prophet, then... The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is, according to Doctrine and Covenants, the only true and living church upon the face of the whole earth with which I, the Lord, am pleased, speaking of the church collectively and not individually. I know the church is true, if the book is true. And if the church is true, its leaders its doctrines and its practices are true. Now, let me make a bold declaration. I don't know if I have any anti-Mormons in here or any apostates, but let me just teach something to all the apostates and all the anti-Mormons in all the world. Ready? You're all idiots! You're attacking the wrong thing. It's so simple to destroy the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It is so easy, and you're making it way too hard. Where do apostates attack? D. Mormons' doctrines, Mormons believe false doctrines, and they attack here, and they use a Bible that is absent plain and precious truths to do it. Everyone attacks our leaders, our doctrines and our practices. Mormons wear magic underwear. Joseph Smith looked, put his head in a hat. Joseph had multiple wives. They attack D. You want to destroy the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? It's so easy. What do you do? All you have to do is what? Show that the Book of Mormon was written in the 1800s by Joseph Smith. Now that shouldn't be hard to do, is it? Let me give you an example. There is a line in Julius Caesar 
There is a line in the play, Julius Caesar, that says that the, that the, the clock rang. The clock rang. Now, instantaneously, tell me what you know about the play, Julius Caesar. When was it written? Not in the days of Julius Caesar, right? It's pretty obvious that Julius Caesar, the play, was not written in the days of Julius Caesar because if it had been, it would not say what? That the clock rang. Now, shouldn't there be dozens of examples in the Book of Mormon that you could point to and say, see, that was written in the 1800s. It should be so easy to destroy the church. Just show us in the Book of Mormon, just show us in the book evidence that it was written in the 1800s, not from 600 BC to 400 AD. Now, why hasn't anyone been able to do that? Because just the opposite is true. The book proves that Joseph could not have written it. Now, time will only permit me 10 minutes of this, but I would love to spend more time. Let me just give you a couple of examples about the credibility that the book provides the church, its leaders, its doctrines, and its founder. I love this one. Many early critics of the Book of Mormon believed it lacked any literary merit whatsoever. For instance, one man claimed that Joseph Smith was a blockhead and that the Book of Mormon was the most gross, the most ridiculous, the most imbecile, the most contemptible concern to be palmed off upon a society as a revelation. Yet over time, even some of the Book of Mormon's most skeptical critics have felt compelled to change their tune. For instance, Joseph's famous biographer Fawn Brody saw him as a mythmaker of prodigious talent, and Harold Bloom, a Yale-trained literary scholar, considered Joseph Smith to be a religious genius. This dramatic shift may lead some to wonder, how did Joseph the blockhead suddenly transform into Joseph the genius in the eyes of his critics? In truth, this change had little to do with Joseph himself and much more to do with a 588-page book that he dictated to his scribes in less than three months. As people began to analyze the text more carefully, it became clear that it was far more complex and sophisticated than most had ever imagined. What makes the Book of Mormon's sophistication so remarkable is that it can be demonstrated on so many different levels. The text has over 200 named characters, over 150 named locations, multiple migrations, distinct cultures, three calendar systems, a system of weights and measures, complex source texts, genealogies, lineage histories, political histories, authentic legal cases, realistic battles, multiple literary genres, embedded flashbacks, brilliant doctrinal discourses, numerous fulfilled prophecies, and well over a thousand proposed intertextual relationships and Hebrew literary elements. Amazingly, these features are all intricately woven together into a coherent narrative which is essentially free from error. For instance, 
The Book of Mormon has over 600 passages of geographic relevance scattered throughout its text, and yet virtually every city, land, body of water, hill, or region maintains a consistent spatial relationship with other geographic features. Another example of consistency comes from the lengthy genealogical record found in the Book of Ether. The first chapter introduces a list of 30 different kings beginning with Ether and going back to Jared. This list then serves as a framework for the rest of the book, which precisely chronicles the reigns of its kings, except in reverse order. Trying to keep track of the various sets of plates, through their transmission, through prophetic caretakers, and how they are all tied together can be a formidable task. Yet careful analysis has shown that the source texts of the Book of Mormon have been masterfully abridged into a coherent and unified record. In the Book of Helaman, Samuel the Lamanite prophesied of the coming of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Father of heaven and of earth, the creator of all things from the beginning. This 21-word name title happens to be a verbatim quote from King Benjamin's speech, given nearly 250 pages earlier, thus offering a remarkable example of the Book of Mormon's intertextual relationships. Chapter 17 through 27 in the Book of Alma actually contain a flashback within a flashback, allowing readers to view the destruction of Ammonihah from two different perspectives. Yet these separate narrative threads are expertly woven together and seamlessly converge back into the original storyline. In Alma 11, we find a developed system of weights and measures. Not only does it have parallels to ancient Mesopotamian and Egyptian systems, but its units of exchange are surprisingly practical. The Book of Mormon contains a number of uniquely developed doctrines, such as the Plain of Salvation, despite the fact that each prophet adapted these core doctrines to his people's various circumstances. It is clear that they shared a very nuanced and consistent set of related theological ideas. Perhaps most impressive of all are the Book of Mormon's variety and quantity of Hebraisms, or features typical of the ancient Hebrew literary tradition and culture. These Hebraisms are consistent with the text's claimed Israelite background, and many of them could be quite sophisticated. For instance, the entire chapter of Alma 36 is a unified chiasm, which introduces 17 key concepts and then repeats them in reverse order. Another parallel structure called gradation repeats each successive concept to create a unity of ideas and build up to a climactic conclusion. At least 50 types of poetic, grammatical, or literary Hebraisms have been identified in the Book of Mormon. Many of them show up in the dozens, and some of them, like chiasmus, show up in the hundreds. This brief sampling can hardly convey the full depth and breadth of the Book of Mormon's impressive complexity, but it's enough to demonstrate that the book is anything but ridiculous, as many early critics believe. Some have even compared the Book of Mormon with its immersive world and characters to popular fantasy novels such as J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Yet, to put things in perspective, Tolkien was an English professor who spent decades developing and revising the world of Middle-earth and the characters who inhabited it. In contrast, Joseph Smith was an uneducated farmer who dictated the entire Book of Mormon, in the presence of multiple witnesses, in no more than 74 working days, without any notes or reference materials, without any substantive revisions, and without relying on scribes to help him remember where he had left off after interruptions. Whether a genius or not, it seems highly improbable that anyone, even a trained literary scholar like Tolkien, could have created and then flawlessly juggled so many complex features under these conditions. Yet somehow, the young 23-year-old Joseph Smith accomplished it, without any prior literary experience to speak of. 
As LDS scholar Daniel Peterson has noted, the intricate structure and detailed complexity of the Book of Mormon seem far better explained as the work of several ancient writers using various written sources over the space of centuries than exploding suddenly from the mind of a barely educated manual laborer on the American frontier. For this reason, the Book of Mormon's complexity, consistency, and sophistication provide excellent evidence that it truly was translated by the gift and power of God just as Joseph Smith repeatedly testified. Complexity. Complexity is one of the great evidences of its truthfulness. Let me give you a couple others. Ready? Just kind of a fun one. Turn to 1 Nephi chapter 2, verse 6. 1 Nephi chapter 2, verse 6. I can testify of this. I lived in Arizona for eight years. Joseph Smith grew up and spent his whole life in very fruitful upstate New York. I don't know if you've ever seen the terrain of upstate New York, but let me show you an interesting phrase. 1 Nephi chapter 2, verse 6. I want you to tell me if you, growing up in Utah, well, Utah maybe, if you had grown up in New York, would you have ever written this? And it came to pass that when they had traveled three days in the wilderness, he pitched his tent in the valley of the side of a river of water. Would you have ever written that it was a river of water? Subtle. I would never have written that. I would never have written, oh, by the way, it was a river of water. What other kind of river did Joseph possibly know? Now, if you've ever lived in a desert, you happen to know that, Madison, there are a whole lot of dry rivers, and 90% of the time, they're just empty and dry. In Arizona, we call them washes, and we build roads through them, because 99% of the day, 99% of the year, they're, they're empty, and we don't have to worry about it. And then the monsoons come, and when the monsoons come, those washes are filled with water and they wash cars away. Every year, I watched people lose their cars because they drove them through a wash with water in it. Arizona finally passed what they called the stupid motorist law, saying, if you're dumb enough to drive through a wash with water in it and your car gets swept away and we have to rescue you, you pay for the rescue. It was costing the state of Arizona too much to rescue stupid people who drove through a wash when there was water in it. If you ask me what this means, this means something to me because I lived in a dry desert. To say that they pitched their tent on the side of a river of water says what? It's normally dry, but right now, it's full of water. Who wrote verse 6? Whoever wrote verse 6 lived where? in a desert, like Nephi, not Joseph Smith. Let me show you another possible trip up that could easily have tripped up Joseph Smith. Chapter 16, when Nephi breaks his bow and he makes a new bow, what else did he do? I would not have written that. Did he break any arrows? Did Nephi break any arrows? So why does he make a new arrow out of a stick? 
Ah, none of you know. You might have fallen into the trap. You know why? You cannot shoot a wood arrow. Sorry, what kind of arrows would he have had? What kind of arrows did he bring out of Jerusalem? What kind of bow did he have? And a steel bow would have had. And what can't you shoot with a wood bow? Steel arrows. If Joseph had not included that line, it would have been the clock ticked. And everyone would have said, fraud, because you can't shoot a steel arrow with a wood bow. So what did Nephi do? He made a wood arrow. There are so many evidences. The complexity, the vocabulary. Now, do you see what the Lord has done? He has given us credibility. If that book is true, then what, does it, what do you know about its translator? If that book is true, what do you know about the only church that espouses it as scripture? The reorganized church doesn't. What do you know about the only church that espouses that book as scripture? What do you know about its leaders? Who has the keys of the priesthood? Should we have a show off between print or uh, should Pope Francis and President Nelson have a little show off on priesthood power and show who has priesthood keys? Never going to work, will it? But I know who has keys. I know who has priesthood keys because why? I know the book is true. Now there's one more. What was E? If the book is true, then we say to the whole Muslim and Jewish world, Jesus was the Christ. If Joseph Smith wrote a true book, then Jesus was the Christ. And half this planet needs to know that. And I know that Jesus is the Christ if the book is true. Now, you and I both know that the ultimate test of the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon is not the greatness of its evidence. The ultimate truth, the ultimate evidence of the Book of Mormon is the spiritual witness you receive when you read it. I bear you my testimony. I have read it many, many times. And I love that book with all my soul. I will spend my life teaching its contents because there is no book on earth better than that book to help human beings become better. Whoever wrote the Book of Mormon knows exactly what is broken with the human condition and wrote in answers to solve every problem that we have. I have taught for 31 years and not once have I ever found a student who has a problem that cannot be solved in the Book of Mormon. Of its truthfulness, I testify. And if it's true, then what we know about God is also true. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.